The Wilderness is sponsored by Honey, the easiest way to save money when shopping online. Not everyone can win in 2020, but with Honey, the free money-saving browser extension, literally everyone can win. It's the online shopping tool that makes your life just a little bit easier. Honey automatically searches the internet for the best promo codes and discounts and applies them to your cart every time you shop online. It works on over 30,000 sites, J.Crew, Target, Sephora, eBay, Best Buy, Adidas, Nordstrom, and will help you score the lowest price possible on things you're already buying anyway, which definitely counts as a win. But if you were actually stuck in the wilderness, you might find some honey to help you survive. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Or you could just prime something and save money with honey. I recently, I mean, uh, last episode I talked about my Amazon purchases, mm-hmm. but this episode I'm going to talk about my J. Crew purchases. I saved some money on, on honey, and I bought a very comfortable sweatshirt from J. Crew. That was funny. That was it. How, how crazy is that, guys? Unreal. Pretty wild. It asked for a personal story. Isn't that personal story nuts that Maybe I bought a, a sweatshirt? A little too intimate. <laughs> a little uncomfortable. <laughs> a little too vulnerable. I injected a personal experience. That's what it asked me to do. Honey has found its over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings. Wow. It's easy to win with Honey. It's free to use and installs in your browser in just a few seconds. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com wilderness. That's joinhoney.com wilderness. There were Trump signs everywhere, Trump banners, like huge banners flying my neighbor's house across the street. So many times during that election, I thought, well, the banner will come down now. Like, you know, they had four girls. I was like, after he brags about grabbing women by the pussy, I was like, well, now the banner will come down, obviously. And it never did. None of them ever did. We just saw more and more Trump signs come up. Angela Aldis lives outside Pittsburgh in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, a place that Donald Trump won by 31 points in an election where he carried the state by a little more than 44,000 votes. He was the first Republican to do so in nearly three decades. The day of the inauguration was really rough. (laughs) I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. And the next days, seeing the Women's March. We choose love. I didn't go. I had a newborn at the time. I can keep quiet. It was inspiring to see that, but also, like, immediately, I just had this cynicism of, like, what if none of that matters? What if these people aren't going to do any work afterwards to actually make a difference to get him out of office? Lucky for us, Angela didn't give in to that cynicism. A few months later, she and some other women in her community started a group called Voice of Westmoreland. We'll hear more about their organizing and activism in a bit. What's important to know for now is that our journey out of the wilderness begins in places like Westmoreland County with people like Angela Aldis. Over the next few episodes, we'll spend time all over the country with swing voters and occasional voters and first-time voters, all of whom could get Democrats over the finish line in November. But I wanted to start here with the organizers and volunteers whose energy and enthusiasm will put that victory within reach. The people who've responded to 2016 by throwing themselves into the hard work of citizenship. And most of them are women. It is the year of the woman. Women across this nation smashed barriers in this year's historic midterm election. In the crucial Philly suburbs, female voters driving the agenda heading into 2020. Lots and lots of women are acting one step further than what they did before. Here in the Northeast, like other midterm battlegrounds, women organizers, activists, and voters swept women candidates into power up and down the ticket. None of us ran to make history. We ran to make change. 
However, the historical significance of this evening is not lost on me. In Pennsylvania alone, a state that had an all-male congressional delegation since 2014, a record eight women ran for the House, and half of them won. For the first time ever, not one, but four women were elected to Congress from Pennsylvania. Today, the road to 270 electoral votes and 51 Senate seats starts in this traditionally Democratic region of the United States. Pennsylvania is the most likely Trump state to turn blue. Maine is where a number of Democratic women are running to defeat Susan Collins, whose seat we need to flip the Senate. And in New Hampshire, Democrats will have to defend the state's four electoral votes and Jean Shaheen's Senate seat from an onslaught of Republican spending. Women are on the front lines of all these fights. And in this episode, we'll find out why and learn more about their battle plan for 2020. Then, to get a better sense of what these organizers are hearing when they talk to potential Democratic voters, I sat down with some myself. What issues do these voters care about? What pisses them off about politics? And what will motivate them to cast their ballot for a Democrat in 2020? I'm John Favreau. Welcome to The Wilderness. The interval between 2016 and 2018 created what we political scientists call a political opportunity structure that sort of hit the Democrats over the head like a two-by-four. That's Theda Scotchpole, a familiar voice from last season and a professor of government and sociology at Harvard University. It told them that instead of contacting Washington or worrying about national politics, they had to organize in districts and in states and for congressional elections. After the November 2016 outcome, it was a matter of less than a week. Citizens started organizing all over the United States. Theta's research found similarities between this organizing and the kind that happened after the 2008 election. Ultimately, our research shows that voluntary groups of citizens determined to fight back against the Trump presidency and the Republican agenda that it was going to further formed in just as many places across the United States as Tea Parties formed eight years earlier to oppose Barack Obama's presidency and the Democrats. Today, in Pennsylvania, resistance groups can be found in 52 of the state's 67 counties. They activated citizens in many districts and states where Democrats had not really been very energetic in 2016. By 2018, they were generating an unprecedented number of people willing to run for office at the state and local as well as national level for Congress. And they helped to fuel a huge turnout in 2018 that I think was responsible for the blue wave we saw. And those groups were mostly led by older white women. This isn't the first time that women have led a progressive movement, as we're reminded by another familiar voice. I'm Rebecca Traster. I am a writer at large at New York Magazine, and I'm the author of Good and Mad, which is a book about the political potency of women's anger. In the contemporary Democratic Party, sort of since the mid-60s, the party's foot soldiers, the people who've always done the work of voter registration and turnout, get out the vote, who've done the organizing and the volunteering, have always been women. It's been women of color. White women have been split as a demographic. A majority of white women have voted for conservative politicians for Republican candidates, going back as long as they've been keeping track. But after Donald Trump is elected over Hillary Clinton, something sort of breaks in a lot of them. 
Rebecca explains how a lot of white women experienced a kind of political awakening and transformation because of 2016. The stories we like to tell ourselves in this country about inequity is that inequity is in our past, right? Yes, the country's systems were built around slavery, but, you know, slavery was abolished. And yes, there was segregation, but that was fixed during the civil rights movement. And yes, it's true that women were not allowed to vote and denied, you know, civic and sexual rights and opportunities, but, you know, that was fixed by the women's movement. And so if you are comfortable enough to believe the flattering version of the story of America, then there's not a sense of, like, urgency and emergency to your involvement. It's exactly those attitudes that permitted so many people to think that Donald Trump would never be elected. This couldn't happen in the United States. And then it happened. And what it, what it did was shock a population awake. And part of that population is the white suburban middle class women. And a lot of what I have seen over the past couple of years has been this transformation in so many of these women. Lots of them use language like, I, I came out of the closet as a Democrat. They're suddenly finding their real identity, finding real friends, because they got awakened and engaged in political activism. And that organizing stems from dissatisfaction, fury, a desire to change the way our political system works. What we've seen is this sleeping giant of women's electoral power simply come to life and come roaring for a Republican Party that has had a war on women for apparently just exactly too long. Heather McGee, past president and distinguished senior fellow at the liberal think tank Demos and Demos Action. 81% of women who voted in the 2018 midterm said that it was important to elect more women to public office. There is a vision, a thwarted vision of women's leadership and a sort of gross display of what toxic masculinity in the halls of power can do, right? We have a serial uh, sexual assaulter in the White House. We have men writing laws that would take away women's reproductive freedom at the state level. And we have a man who was deposited onto the Supreme Court after having been credibly accused of sexual assault. And then in the biggest job interview of his life, you know, yelling and screaming and acting like a victim and then still getting hired for a job that he can ostensibly never be fired from. This is the kind of white male privilege that I think women of all races and backgrounds have had enough of and certainly want to see some balance in the halls of power. One woman who surely wanted more balance was Chrissy Houlihan, an Air Force veteran, entrepreneur, and former teacher from Pennsylvania. 2016, the election results really struck me as being something unique to my time on this planet, which is now 52 years. It was honestly quite an eye-opener to see what who I considered to be the most qualified person ever to run for the office of the presidency in Hillary Clinton, be defeated by a person who I considered to be arguably the least qualified person ever to run for the office of presidency. And one happened to be male and one happened to be female, but I felt as though there was no harm in, in raising my hand and, and volunteering to at least serve by running as a candidate, because uh, what's the worst that could happen? You know, I would lose. Right. So... Representative Houlihan didn't lose. She won by 17 points. Before 2018, Pennsylvania had sent only seven women to Congress total. To this day, the state has never had a woman governor or senator. When Chrissy won, she not only flipped a Republican seat in Philadelphia's outer suburbs, she became the first woman ever to be elected to represent her county. 
and she didn't get there on her own. My own team was comprised of a lot of women as well, and I was working at collaborating with people who were running for the 2017 local elections at the same time that I was running for the 2018 national elections. And very many of them, the vast majority of them were women and their teams as well were women uh, and were driven by volunteers who were largely women. Here's Heather McGee again. I have been on the boards of organizations, grassroots organizations like Color of Change and Indivisible and Move On. And each and every one of those organizations have seen just tremendous growth among women, suburban women, black women in the suburbs, rural women, young women, Latina women, Asian American women in California and Washington state. Being the driving force behind getting their friends not just to vote, but to run for office, to volunteer, to phone bank. Again, Fida Scotchpole, who's done extensive research on women-led resistance groups. The resistors tend to be about 75 to 90% women. The men that are involved are often the partners of the women or the friends of the women. They are librarians, teachers, retired teachers, adjunct professors, healthcare professionals, nonprofit leaders, uh, sometimes small business women in creative type businesses. And they're concerned that America is closing in on itself and becoming intolerant and cruel. They see Trump as an exemplar of selfishness and of violating all that they see as the public good. Every free afternoon, every weekend, every morning, knocking doors, canvassing, going to meetings, educating themselves about not just federal level politics, but state politics, their own legislatures. You also saw the spike in numbers of women who ran for office for the first time on all levels. That was a massive and unprecedented wave. And then of course you saw a historic number of them winning. Now, why were they winning? In part, it's because they had women organizing for them, knocking doors for them, pamphleting for them registering voters, trying to expand the electorate. And we've seen that all over the country in a million different ways. Which brings us back to Angela Aldis, who you heard from at the top. On the day of the Women's March, Angela watched the protests on television with a newborn in her lap. She was angry. She was scared. And worse, she was worried that all the protesting and activism wouldn't matter. But then, about a week later... She saw something in her own neighborhood that changed her. One day I was driving back home and I live right near the county courthouse and it was snowing and it was right during the height of um, the Muslim ban. And I saw six people standing out at the corner of the courthouse with signs like supporting immigrants and supporting Muslims. And I pulled over and I started to cry. I couldn't, like, I got teary. I couldn't believe that there was anybody out here who was upset about this and sick about it. And um, so I ran out. I grabbed my kids and I ran out. And I was like, who are you people? I, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're here. And I think I blurted out, like, can I buy you all coffee? It's funny, like, millions of people at, a, at the Women's March didn't give me any hope. But seeing six people in the middle of of Trumpland, standing out there with signs was like one of the most hopeful things. And so that was how I met one of our, our leaders who ended up starting all of this with me, Clara Dooley, was just because she was out there on a cold day with a sign. It turns out that Angela has held a few signs in the cold herself. Before moving to Pennsylvania, she and her husband lived in Wisconsin, 
where former Governor Scott Walker tried to destroy her nurses' union. I had never been political. I voted all the time. I paid attention. I watched PBS NewsHour. But I didn't really pay attention to, like, the local problems. But then when Governor Scott Walker got elected, it became very personal for me. I knew that if he was successful in gutting the unions in Wisconsin, my union, my nurses' union was SEIU, that there would go my protections for my job. I had been diagnosed with MS the year before. In 2010, I was a newlywed and suddenly found myself needing to go to physical therapy to learn to walk with a cane. I was losing my eyesight and it was pretty terrifying. My husband was in school, so I had the only paycheck and we, I had the health insurance, but my union, I think I talked to them the day I got diagnosed. And they were like, we've got this, don't worry. And so when I thought about my union being cut, I thought, oh my gosh, they're gonna, they're gonna wanna get rid of me first. And so I found myself speaking up because I was scared. The Capitol here is now ground zero. We rallied at the Capitol like every day before my shift would start. We'd go out and rally out in the streets and it felt like we were building something. It was exciting. Today, they were nearly 40,000 strong. State workers and their supporters upset by what they see as a frontal assault on their benefits and their union rights. We had our signs and some of them were hilarious. And that felt like power, right? People are taking pictures. We thought, well, this proves the point. The rallies prove the point. MSNBC would come out. That seemed like, wow, this is, this is it. Except it wasn't. Despite all the protests, despite all the other actions they took, it wasn't enough to stop Scott Walker back then. I gave up. I thought, well, never mind. None of, none of what we did mattered anyway. It felt like, it just felt like average citizens couldn't make a difference. Like the game was rigged. The Koch brothers put millions and millions of dollars in, into it. You know, like they demonized teachers and nurses. They made us the enemy. And um, it felt impossible to dispel that. We lost friends. And it was hard. It was really hard and demoralizing. And I kind of just got detached from it then. But the ordeal in Wisconsin taught Angela an incredibly important lesson about politics and organizing. A lesson that all of us should carry into 2020 and beyond. We thought that everybody was upset because we only were talking to ourselves. Like we only were in a protest talking with people who already agreed with us and we weren't having conversations with anybody else. We were only talking to ourselves. Well, fast forward a couple years where Angela, her husband, and their two kids are living in a Pennsylvania county that Trump won by 31 points. She hadn't come across too many people who already agreed with her there until she saw those six women on a street corner protesting the Muslim ban. And that's when she got to work. We knew that, like, this wasn't going to be easy, and we knew that for, like, this wasn't our training, our background, how to organize something, how to do this. And so every week we would listen to these lectures um, from Harvard on like the history of organizing and movement building and people built power and independent political power. And so we'd listen to these lectures every week. During the early weeks of February 1960, the demonstrations that came to be called the sit-in movement exploded across the South. You could see the history of movement building 
the history books, you just hear, oh, Rosa Parks decided one day to sit down and then look at what happened. And then there were sit-ins. No, like there was, there was like a year of planning and strategy and work that went on before that and building and organizing your community. And if we really want to be serious, we know that this is hard work. These are not communities where you're going to just buy a TV ad and win an election. Like These are long, sustained conversations, long, sustained relationships. Angela thought about the lessons she learned in Wisconsin and knew that effective organizing isn't just about showing up and being heard. It requires a strategy and a message that's tailored to the audience you're trying to persuade. Like even something as simple as our name, like every other group that was springing up was like resistance and, you know, revolt and indivisible and whatever. And we're like, I, c- I could just imagine if we were to, to go door to door and knock and talk to our neighbors and you say, hi, I'm Angela and I'm with resistance, whatever. Like that immediately shuts off a conversation. What if they voted for him? It, it also just seemed like, what are you for? And so we were like very purposefully thought like, okay, let's do Voice of Less Moreland for people who are tired of their voice not making a difference, of their voice not being heard. Most of our actions at the beginning were centered around healthcare. I mean, it was an issue that you could talk about with anybody and almost everybody was upset. You're told that there's this political divide and, you know, there's red and there's blue and, and nobody can ever agree. But when you were able to talk about something like healthcare, you can have a real conversation about that. Never forget one, the first canvas we did, the second door I knocked, it was just, it was like a listening canvas to talk to people about healthcare. And the woman immediately said like, I don't want to talk to you. I voted for Trump and I don't want to be talked out of it. And instead of just walking away, we started talking and I said, well, I'm just out here today because like, I'm scared. I have MS, my medicine costs $8,000 a month and I don't know what I do without insurance. And so we slowly started talking. We ended up talking for 15 minutes. And turns out she's terrified about the cost of drugs too. And she thinks it's corrupt. And she feels like, you know, politicians care more about the drug companies than they do about us. And by the end of it, she, she like thanked me for going out there. She's like, well, thank you for the work you're doing. We just talked as humans and, and we got to see that like, it's not us and them, Democrat, Republican. It's us and them, like the people versus the very powerful few. All of this work helped prepare Angela and Voice of Westmoreland for a huge opportunity they weren't expecting. In 2017, the Republican congressman who had represented their district for more than a decade resigned in scandal, and a young Marine and former prosecutor named Connor Lamb stepped up to run. It's a district that Trump won by 20 points, but the kind that Democrats needed to flip in order to win back a state like Pennsylvania. Needless to say, We all had a lot of hope riding on this one. Now a congressional race that could be a harbinger of elections to come this fall. The race between Democrat Connor Lamb and Republican Rick Saccone has been neck and neck. Lamb looks like he has an actual chance. This could be a blueprint to fight every single contestant seat everywhere in the country. And Lamb supporters hope a win will put Washington on notice. And they said, you know that if you can flip this district, this could be the beginning of the blue wave. Like all this anger and this, you know, people being upset about Trump, does, what does it actually mean? What happens if we really channel just how angry we are at the Republican control and the way that the country is going? What happens if we do real work and flip this? And that was amazing to me. It was so cool to see how many people were willing to, to do the scary thing. And then we 
did a lot of work. We'd knocked a lot of doors. We had canvases every weekend and, um, and phone banks. My daughter was with me. She was three at the time, and she had canvassed a lot with me wearing a little lamb costume. She had canvassed so much that she started with her dollhouses to like act out canvassing. Most girls play like dress up or princess or something, and we would play canvassing. So she was there election night wearing her lamb outfit. We were ultimately able to help be a part of, of what one Congressman Lamb, the Democrat, was able to win that seat in the special election. We have an apparent winner in the wow. Pennsylvania special election. Connor Lamb, the Democrat, NBC News is declaring. And it was really cool because what the campaign had projected that they could do in Westmoreland, we overperformed. We did 4% better than they thought we could. It showed the power of knocking doors and having conversations and not just sitting it out because your area is deemed hopeless. And if nothing else, we knew that we had worked as hard as we could. Doesn't get more inspiring than that, does it? In 2018, Angela and Voice of Westmoreland and millions of others just like them showed Democrats how to organize and win, even in the heart of Trump country. It wasn't easy. It took a lot of time and effort. It took a lot of strategy and discipline. And it took plenty of conversations with people who didn't necessarily agree with all of their politics. So they didn't talk about resisting. And they didn't always talk about Trump. They talked about their lives and their families and their worries and their hopes. And it worked. It worked. Now the question is, will it work in 2020? Will Angela and her fellow organizers be able to flip their state when Donald Trump himself is on the ballot? What kind of hard conversations with Pennsylvania voters will that require? We'll find out after the break. The Wilderness is brought to you by Simply Safe. Simply Safe home security is like getting commercial grade enterprise level security, but for your own home. Think about the security Fortune 500 companies use. They need to know police are going to be on the scene immediately. This is exactly the kind of security you get with Simply Safe. If there's a break-in, Simply Safe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime. And that means police dispatch up to 350% faster than for normal a normal burglar alarm. With Simply Safe, you get comprehensive protection for your home. Outdoor cameras and doorbells alert you to anyone approaching your home. Entry, motion, and glass break sensors guard inside. Plus, Simply Safe protects your home from fires, water damage, and carbon monoxide poisoning. It's all mu- Sorry to the listeners. Sorry to Honey fans. Unbelievable. Listen, Unbelievable. here's the thing. Something broke my keyboard, so now I have to use this external thing so that I was unable to mute quickly. I apologize to everybody. Hey, is it something that Simply Safe could fix? If not, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Tough but fair. Trying to sell some home security systems here. Yeah. Well, I feel less secure now. It's all monitored 24-7 by live security professionals. You can set up your system yourself with no tools needed, or Simply Safe experts can do it for you. And it's only I, I, 50 cents a day. I only wish Simply Safe could, could uh, protect us from the time Tommy stole from us. <laughs> no contracts. <laughs> Go to simplysafe.com slash wilderness today to get free shipping on your order. Plus, a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com slash wilderness. It can protect your house and fix Tommy's computer. Save on home security today. Simplysafe.com slash wilderness. The tireless work of people like Angela Aldis helped elect a record number of Democratic candidates in 2018, especially women. But 2020 is a very different election, and here's why. On one hand, more young voters and voters of color turn out in a presidential election than they do in a midterm election. 
that's good for Democrats, who do really well with these voters. On the other hand, more white voters without a college degree turn out in presidential elections as well. That's good for Republicans, who do really well with these voters. Unfortunately, there are three more pieces of good news for Republicans. First, these white voters without a college degree are a much bigger share of the electorate in most of the 2020 swing states, like the northeastern battlegrounds of Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Maine. Second, Donald Trump's name at the top of the ballot will drive turnout among his base even higher. And third, there's a significant chunk of voters who supported Democrats in 2018 as a way to provide a check on Trump and the Republicans in Congress, but who are now telling pollsters that they're open to supporting the president again in 2020. I know, not great. So what does this all mean for Democrats? It means that the party's nominee can't afford to ignore any group of voters, whether it's young voters, voters of color, new voters, white voters with a college degree, or white voters without a college degree. There's very little margin for error. Congresswoman Houlihan knows this and helps us get to the core of what voters in Pennsylvania want. Pennsylvania is critical. It is absolutely on the critical path to success for Democrats in 2020. People really care about what we are for and not who we are against. People in the collar counties of Pennsylvania, and I believe, frankly, at the nation at large, are just tired of the vitriol and the partisanship. I wanted to find out more, so I sat down with some voters a few miles outside of Philadelphia, not far from Chrissy Houlihan's suburban district, the first of four focus groups we conducted for this season of The Wilderness. And in case you're wondering, no, this isn't like one of those New York Times pieces where a bunch of white Trump voters at a diner in Pennsylvania talk about how much they love Trump. Plenty of those available if you're interested. I wanted to talk to voters who are gettable, people who've shown a willingness to vote and a willingness to vote Democrat. They all voted for Democratic candidates in either 2016 or 2018. They're all planning to vote in 2020. And they only follow news about politics a few times a week. Basically, these are the kind of voters who any Democratic candidate will absolutely need to win. The kind of Democratic voters who might have been approached by an organizer like Angela or someone from Chrissy Houlihan's campaign. Hello, everyone. Hi. What's up, John? Hello. Thank you all so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So I am conducting research for a show that I'm producing about voting and politics and issues that really matter to people. Uh, so I'm going to ask you all a bunch of questions, and I would love for everyone to be just as open and honest as possible. Um, there are no right or wrong answers. And, uh, you know, I want to hear all of your opinions. So if you agree or disagree with someone else, feel free to speak up. But this, like, it's not a debate or anything. Everyone should feel very comfortable. Um, so is everyone, everyone all good with that? Everyone yeah. comfortable? Yeah. Okay, good. So thinking about the last election you participated in, what are the reasons you voted in that election? To not get Trump elected. That's exactly why I voted. And, and what, um, what drove you to vote in 18 for those who voted in 2018? How everybody got swept in in 2016 and it was supposed to be a Democratic landslide and uh, it completely was the opposite. So you did it to vote Democrats in yes. the office? Yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah. 
I was gonna ask how does politics make you feel right now and why, but I feel like we have. Uh, <laughs> how, how does politics? I'm embarrassed. You're embarrassed. I'm embarrassed in front of the world because Absolutely. of our because of our politics, and I, I will say this. You know, there's a lot of people don't agree with Trump, and I, I'm not a Trumper, and and I, I find that you know, other countries are looking at us, and and we're losing our integrity. You know, if we can't. We can't solidify somehow. It's not all, it's really, it's more what he says. He's just dumb as a box of rocks. Since he represents the government, I don't have respect for him, so I can't have much respect for the government. Because he has lost respect for the electorate. I was just gonna say, I'm embarrassed, and not for, I guess for how the leadership is conducting themselves, because for so long, we teach children or young youth or even growing up, oh, you behave this way, you do this, you go to work. And it's just like a formula to how you're supposed to behave. So to see the president having like Twitter wars or to be bullying on social media when he doesn't agree, how he attacks people, how he make people feel, just, I don't think that's right. And I'm embarrassed for that, you know, as a people that it has come to that. So yeah, not a lot of love for Donald Trump in this group, with one exception. So show of hands, um, how many people believe they'll vote in the 2020 election? Everyone here? Yep. Okay. Um, is anyone considering voting for Donald Trump? I am. You are? Yes. Are so, you a definite or? No. Uh, no, I am not. Um, so I, like I said earlier, I- the stock I, market crashes. I know. I am probably the complete opposite of everyone in this okay, room. Okay, I did fine. vote for Donald Trump. And I will okay. I, and I will at this that's point say, I'm not sure it was the right decision, <laughs> but I'm going to say it. Um, but you don't have to I justify think, your no, decision. I, I know, but I think a lot of it was, <laughs> a lot of people felt that way. Because the truth of the matter is, I'm embarrassed for the Democratic Party. I am a Democrat, so I want everyone to know that. I, I affiliate with Democrats, I vote in the Democrat primaries. You know, for women, women's rights and, and gay rights is a huge thing right now. Um, you know, I'm not having kids and I'm not trying to have an abortion or something, but that's a woman's right to do that, you know, and that's how I've always felt. But, um, you know, as we've seen, the, you know, this past year in general, you know, one of the, I guess I'll say better things that Trump has done is the economy. The economy has been great. If anyone has investments in the stock market, you're probably seeing a huge uptick in how much money you have um, versus years past because, you know, when other presidents were in office, I was losing money in the stock market, now I'm making 15%. No one else had anything good to say about Trump. But they also didn't think too highly of Democrats, the media, or politics in general. The thing with politics and government that bothers me is when these people are making laws and decisions that affect so many people I don't think they they think about the gravity of how it's going to affect people's lives. I think they make decisions callously and recklessly and and don't think about the effect that it's going to have on the general population. Right. Well, it's it's, it's 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 politics is all about, you know, like they do things to appeal to other people in politics so that they can get things. It's all about waging leverage. It's and, not really about what about you want or votes. what you need. It, and exactly. it's all about getting votes. It's not about, it's never been about. Hmm. They could care the less people. what happens to the people. 
the people that are affected. We can't unify and get things together because everybody's quarreling. They're in quarreling at the top. All the people are people end friendships. Are so you like Trump? You're not my friend anymore, you know, right? I mean, I'm to the point now where I feel like politics just annoys the hell out of me, where I kind of have to detach from it in order to live a normal life because there's so much, it, it's so diluted, it's so masked, it's so, ultimately, I'm only getting half the story. And then, yes, I, my one vote counts, but it's like, how much does it count? What sources do you trust the most on the media? I mean, the reason why the news and the media exist is because it was supposed to form a well-informed electorate. And that was for people to learn about the issues, learn about the people that you are going to vote into the office of whatever your local, your national races, and make that decision based on the information that you're provided. I don't believe we are always provided with the best information. I don't believe that we are always provided with non-biased information. I feel like we get the information they want us to have. Right. Exactly. I and and I'm a huge fan of overseas news. I would rather get my news from other countries <laughs> than about our our politics and what is going on in the world, not just here, in the world, than, than CNN or Fox or MSNBC or NBC or it, right. I mean, you think you think Facebook is reliable? No. To some extent, okay. I, mean, I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> no one knows anymore. <laughs> what is your opinion of the Democratic Party? It's too many. Yeah, I can't focus. Yeah, there's yet. no focus on that at all because they're just throwing everybody in a ring. Well, aside from the candidates, which we can talk about, what about the party as a whole, the Democratic Party as a whole? Fragmented. They're disjointed. Yeah. Yeah. Fragmented, yeah. disjointed. Interesting. I think they stand for the important issues, what I consider the important issues. And so. what and what issues are the, what issues uh, do you see yourself most in line with the Democratic Party on? Uh, healthcare. Okay. I really think universal healthcare is important. I would like to see some form of education reform. I would love to see lobbying just completely done away with. Um, anyone else, when you vote for Democrats, what makes you vote for them? I, I tend to think that they are more, they're more for the people than the, the common, I put it, the common people. Okay. The people that are working people, that aren't rich. The people that don't own businesses. Whereas the Republican Party just seems to always be concerned about the wealthy, you know, the... And big business. So, is, and then who here is definitely going to vote for the Democratic candidate, whoever the Democratic candidate is? Oh, I couldn't say. One, two... I have to do my research first. You're going to do your research Even though only one person said she was considering voting for Trump, no one would commit to voting for the Democratic candidate, no matter who wins the nomination. Who here would vote for Barack Obama again if he was running again? I probably would. So that's almost, that's almost everyone except No, someone. I would not. Okay, that's good. Just <laughs> trying to get getting all these down. Is there a um, chance of that? No, there's not, <laughs> there's, there's not a chance. But I, <laughs> What's most important to you? Like if you could build a dream Democratic candidate, what kind of qualities would you be looking for? I can't question them being racist or not. 
Integrity. Yeah, integrity. I was just going to say that, yeah. Just, integrity is important. Yeah. Okay. I would like a focus campaign. Focus campaign. Not a pro empty promise campaign, not a I have 150 things on my list I want to do for you. How about you focus on five important issues and you tell me how you're going to achieve them? Because to me, that's, that's, I think, something that every single one of our presidential candidates has done wrong in the past. So I would vote for whoever ran a decent campaign. I am so tired of listening to people badmouth each other. And it just really seems like that's all they do. And I'm not just talking about Democrats, I'm talking about politicians across the board. I don't understand politics as a whole from my 30 years of being out of high school. My focus was on was raising my son who's autistic. So, but I know I have no understanding. What they need to do is have an understanding class with those who don't understand so they can get a better election going on because I would love to be in the politics just to see what's going on. But see it now, I want no, no, no parts of it. I don't understand it, I just turn it off and go something else. That last comment stayed with me after the conversation was over. It's not that she doesn't care about politics or government. She just doesn't understand the issues or the debate around the issues. And that's pretty common with a lot of voters who are too busy working and raising kids to follow politics or figure out what news source they can trust. There was plenty of frustration and disappointment with Trump and that Pennsylvania focus group. But in order to win their support, Democrats need to somehow break through all the noise and nastiness and corruption that these voters see coming out of Washington. It's also true that the more Democrats can tie Trump and Republican politicians to the mess in D.C., the better chance they'll have to present an alternative vision of politics. According to David Plouffe, Barack Obama's campaign manager, Democrats have such an opportunity in the main Senate race, where longtime Republican incumbent Susan Collins is up in 2020. You know, I think Collins obviously is someone who's been immensely popular. People didn't see her as a politician. She's lost all that. And so I think there's a decent chance to beat her. I think it will require, you know, the Democratic candidate for Senate holding on to basically all the vote our Democratic presidential candidate gets in Portland in the suburbs, in the southern part of the state. You know, I think she's a super tempting target. There is no path to a Democratic majority in the Senate that doesn't run through Maine. Full stop. That's Lisa Roberts, executive director of the Maine Democratic Party. And she's got a lot to say about this. Susan Collins was first elected in 1996. In 2014, she won with nearly 70% of the statewide vote. And that means that a large number of Democrats voted for her. In fact, if you went out and polled Democrats, you'd probably find a large number of them who voted for her, not just once, but twice or multiple times. But who she was then is not who she is now. And that is why it matters so much. You know, she has a track record, especially since 2016, of saying one thing and doing another. She has told us for decades that she is pro-choice, yet she voted for Brett Kavanaugh, and she's helped Donald Trump appoint 32 anti-abortion judges. Roughly half of Mainers have a pre-existing condition, and that means that she would have left all of us out on the street when she voted to gut the ACA, which she has voted to do almost a dozen times. Mainers won't select a Democratic candidate to face Collins until their primary in June. But Lisa and the Maine Democrats are already building off their 2018 successes like electing Maine's first woman governor, Janet Mills, electing Jared Golden in Maine's historically red 2nd Congressional District, 
and taking control of the state legislature. We not only need to replicate what we did well in 2018, but we have to do it on steroids in 2020. And so what we've done coming out of 2018 is we've recognized that we need to, like I said earlier, meet people where they're at, not only with the issues that we care about, but with our actual organizing program. And so we've actually invested quite heavily in our digital infrastructure and developing a, a distributed organizing model. And so what this really does is it allows us to bring our trainings uh, directly into the living rooms and the homes of Democrats across the state, especially into our rural areas where we can't realistically plan to put organizers on the ground. And this is going to allow us to prepare people to go neighbor to neighbor, block by block throughout their community and talk to the people that they already know and have existing relationships with about these issues. And so we are not only deploying a traditional field strategy, we're using new tactics and new tools, and we're trying to bridge the geographic divide because it's so important that we be on the ground early and we are talking to voters to determine what's going to be the most effective messaging strategy. Organize early, organize everywhere, and talk to everyone. Not just a few weeks before an election about a specific candidate, but all year round about the issues people care about. That's the way to break through all the distrust and disappointment we heard in that Pennsylvania focus group. That's what Lisa Roberts and the Maine Democrats are doing. And that's what Angela Aldis and Voice of Westmoreland are doing, too. Our strategy is about, you know, building long-term sustainable political power. And that is hard work. It's not sexy. You don't just swoop in and swoop out. You don't build long-term sustainable political power with expensive TV ad buy. You do it by being there month in and month out. And so it is November, middle of November, in an odd year, and this weekend we are going out and canvassing in Latrobe. Okay, what's our next number? All right, so um, 205 and 209. Latrobe is home to the Latrobe militia, which they sent a militia to Charlottesville, proudly. And Latrobe is home to the Trump House. Some people call it the Trump Shrine. It's a two-story house painted in red, white, and blue with a cutout of Trump as, I think is like as tall as the house. And people, like thousands and thousands of people have gone to take pictures by it. But just because those things are present there doesn't mean that there aren't conversations to be had. Hi, my name is Amanda. I'm with I'm a volunteer. I'm with Voice of Westmoreland. It's just a grassroots group that's trying to get people in Harrisburg and Washington to like listen to people in this area. Basically, we wanted to know if you had like 30 seconds today to hear about a petition we were trying to get signed. It's amazing how much people will open up if you don't lead with, you know, hi, uh, I'm a Democrat. You need to vote for Democrats. Democrats are always going to be great for you. And this is a Democrat. And why aren't you a Democrat? Like, if you don't do any of that, if you just say, like, who you are, and you're a volunteer, and you're out there because you're scared, and it really matters to you, and it matters to your family, and you're a little bit vulnerable, it's really interesting that people will talk to you in a different way. Like, we really mean it when we say, like, surprise them with your humanity. Like, show them that you're not the scary person that Fox News tells them that you are. It's funny. Barack Obama used to say that meeting people in person at town halls and campaign events was the most effective way of proving that he wasn't the caricature they saw on Fox News. As Angela has also discovered, these in-person conversations are what help voters understand that a lot of us want the same things in a leader, even if we don't agree on everything. 
I think in Westmoreland, I think people want to know that their politicians aren't being bought out. I think it would be nice to have a president who was working for the people. You know, they pretend to give us tax cuts and really we're only doing worse. We're all like <laughs> one accident away from medical bankruptcy. Like, I think people want a president who actually is their champion. They want a president who actually knows that the system is not working for them and that the powerful few are getting so powerful. I think that's what everybody wants. And if we can just talk about it in the right way and message it in the right way, hopefully that's what we can get. Like all of us, Angela has her concerns about 2020. But instead of letting those concerns consume her, she's using them as fuel. I think everybody should be scared. And then everybody should realize you need to be tapped into that fear and you need to let yourself think about what could happen if we don't prevent Trump winning again and the Republicans having control again. But then you can't just stay in that fear. You have to find a way to do something, especially those of us who like have privilege. Like, yeah, I have MS and that's really hard, but I have so many things that like I'm still able to walk right now. Like any privilege that you have, you have to like work up the courage to fight for people who don't have as much as you. Trump didn't happen overnight. This happened over time and I think it's because white people let it happen. They were comfortable enough that they didn't stop anything. Um, and now the one good thing about Trump is people are paying attention a little more. And I really hope that they're not just paying attention by sharing memes and once a year going to a women's march and, you know, watching Stephen Colbert be brilliantly funny and witty and snarky. Like, I hope they're not just paying attention to that, but they're paying attention to the fact of how much opportunity they have to do something. We found people with Angela's grit all over the country. Like a public school teacher in suburban Phoenix who's running for state senate in a district that Democrats lost by under 300 votes in 2018. So we're headed to the Southwest to look at how the suburbs are changing and find out whether those shifts will be enough for Democrats to win in the Sun Belt. That's next time on The Wilderness. The Wilderness is written and directed by me, John Favreau of Crooked Media. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein and Andrea B. Scott. Andrea B. Scott is also our editor. Austin Fisher is our assistant editor and associate producer. Music by Marty Fowler. Sound design and mixing by Charlotte Landis and Alex Sugiera. Production support from Allison Falzetta, Sidney Rapp, and Brian Semmel. Kyle Seglin was our recording engineer. Austin Fast, Virginia Laura, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Max Wasserman were our field producers. Fact-checking by Justin Klosko and Soraya Shockley. Archival production by Shana Deloria and Soraya Shockley. Archival legal review by Chad Russo. Special thanks to Sarah Geismer, Mukta Mohan, and Tanya Sominator, and to Mike Kulishek from Benenson Strategy Group. Thanks for listening.